A quick warning in this interview, there is some open and honest talk about sexual assault. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is Stephanie Beatrice. For five seasons, she has starred on the hit show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's absolutely one of my favorite shows on TV. Everybody in it is fantastic. Terry Crews, Andy Samberg, Chelsea Peretti, Andre Brower. The show got canceled on Fox last year, but fear not. It's coming back for a sixth season on NBC. The new season just premiered. Stephanie plays Detective Rosa Diaz, and Rosa is easily the toughest cop in the precinct. She's brave, serious, she rides a badass motorcycle. She's so tough, in fact, that she won't even let a cold keep her down. I don't need your help because I am not sick. Gina, where is the cold medicine? I hate to point out the obvioso, but why do you need the meds if you're not sick, hmm? To fight off the cold symptoms that my healthy body is exhibiting. When Stephanie and I talked in 2017, she was starring in a movie with a very, very different tone. It's called The Light of the Moon. In it, she plays Bonnie, a young woman living in Brooklyn with her boyfriend. Toward the beginning of the film, she goes through a vicious sexual assault. And from there, the movie tells the story of the aftermath of that event. Its effect on her work life, her relationships, even little stuff like whether or not she wears headphones when she's walking off the subway. It's a little brutal to watch, but it's also nuanced, realistic, and very touching. Anyway, Stephanie joined me from NPR Studios in New York City. Here's our conversation. Stephanie Beatrice, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I am such... So, here's the deal. We're going to talk about uh, your new movie, The Light of the Moon, in a little bit. Um, great. But because the subject matter is so serious, I want to talk about the silly stuff first. Okay. Because um, I think that's an easier transition. Uh, so let's talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is one of my favorite shows on television. Oh, great. I'm so happy to hear that. It is. I, I don't miss an episode. And I, I wonder how you got this gig. Because it is an interesting array of types of actor on the show, ranging from straight-up comedy people to the most serious of dramatic actors. That came about in a lot of different ways. One of the main ways that did happen was Allison Jones was our casting director for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and she's cast a lot of stuff. Um, Parks and Rec, she cast Freaks and Geeks, which is one of my old favorite shows. She just is good at putting a great group of people together. I don't know. You know, I think casting directors are sort of the unsung heroes of Hollywood. I think that they have a, a really incredibly tough job, and she pulled us sort of all out of, you know, out of our little respective comfortable worlds and threw us together and made some kind of like alchemical magic. She is really kind of a she's been on this sh she's been on this show before. Oh, um, she's fantastic, isn't she? Yeah, I had to I really had to talk her into coming onto the show because she she's is shy. very modest about her work, but yes. she's cast like 75% of the great comedy of the last 15 years or so. Yeah. And it seems like this show, particularly as with Parks and Recreation and The Office, is a show where 
the the characters grow out of the actors on the program that the that the personalities yeah. of those actors and the way that they match up together really drive the show in a way that's actually relatively unusual for TV comedy. I would agree with that statement. I think, you know, one of the best examples of that is actually how I was cast. Uh, I initially read for the part of Amy Santiago, um, who was uh, detailed in the script. It said that she was Latina. And so I went in for that role. And Allison said, why don't you come back? I want you to come back for this Amy role. But I also want you to come back for this character of Megan. And Megan was... uh, essentially Rosa, but before I came in. So, like, in the script, it's described her as really tough and scary, uh, you know, real New Yorker. Um, And I sort of took that and ran with it. And then when I was cast, when uh, Mike Shore and Dan Gore decided to cast me, they said, look, we're going to – we love you. We're going to change the name of the character to to sort of suit you better. And that's where Rosa Diaz came in. Did you imagine that the big break in your career would come from a sitcom? You know, I did. I wanted that so badly. Uh, Sitcoms, for me, have always been a real touchstone of the American experience for me. I immigrated to the United States when I was three, two or three, and my father and I would watch Seinfeld religiously. I know every episode of Seinfeld, and to me particularly sitcoms, I think, are the new sort of Shakespeare in a weird way. You know, in Shakespeare's day, everyone would go to the theater and that's where you would all connect and like think and talk about the human experience, right? You would all be in this one space watching this one kind of story. And now it's sitcoms, I think, that connect us in a way, in that way. Did you have Seinfeld peoples in school in Texas where you grew up? Seinfeld peoples like did you have somebody that I remember in middle school I knew the people that I could go talk to about what happened on Seinfeld well I mean my dad you know my dad and I would watch it together and we would dissect it we would literally dissect it my dad would be like you know why that's funny because and then he would like try to explain to me why what had just happened was hilarious we would talk about it all the time it was really like the way that my dad and I bonded a lot because as a teenager you know you don't like your parents you think that they're awful and they are, but really, you are the awful one. So it was the only way that my dad and I were able to sort of bond and like have a thing that was just ours together when I was in that sort of awful, awkward stage. <laughs> I just really like one of the weird things about Seinfeld that I only noticed as an adult. And again, I say this as the as the biggest Seinfeld fan. I, I couldn't love the show more. Yeah. Well, for one thing, as a kid, I don't think I understood that the characters were supposed to be bad people. I oh, just, yeah. I think I basically identified with them literally with no problem at all. Yeah. So that was one thing. But the other thing is, like, every character that's not the main cast on the show is essentially a cartoon character. Oh, for sure. And one of the weird things that that sort of makes happen on the show, one of the consequences of that is that every person who's not white on the show is a cartoon character. And they're often often their cartooniness is based on their ethnicity. You've nailed the main problem that I have with Seinfeld. You've nailed it. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm like I always I I feel like I, I I want to be able to acknowledge that without putting down the significance for me of Seinfeld or that I think it is a brilliant work of art or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as an actor, 
you're coming into, especially like, so for example, those all of those actors were guest stars, right? And they're dying to get onto what is ostensibly one of the most popular shows on television. I think I just used ostensibly correctly, but I'm not sure. We'll <laughs> we'll think about it. Um, what's one of the most popular shows on television, right? So you get, your agent calls you, they say, you have an audition for Seinfeld. And you read the sides and you think, damn it, it's not really a great version of who I am, you know, but you want to do the role. So you go in and then you book it and you can't change the lines once you're on, once you're on set, you know, you can only just throw yourself at this thing and do the best possible job that you can. And I've certainly played roles where, you know, looking back, I, I kind of wish that maybe I hadn't taken that part or maybe I, I wish I could have said something at the time about how the part was written, but you're not always in a position of power to do that, you know, and sometimes you really need the money. And so I wish that, you know, more writers rooms had people of color in them. Uh, I wish that more writers rooms had LGBTQ people in them, IA people in them. You know, uh, that is something that's slowly but surely changing. But that's the, that was always the hardest thing for me to when watching one of my favorite shows. And, you know, like you talk about like friends. I mean, it took forever for us to see people of color on Friends. And, like, even even sometimes, like, in the background, you're just watching the show and you're like, where are the black people? Where are the Latino people? This is supposed to be New York City. Like, I've never seen a New York that looks like this. It's the same as when you watch, like, some Woody Allen films and you're just like, where are the people of color? Where are they? Do you not see us? Do we not exist for you? You know? One of the things that I really like about Brooklyn Nine-Nine is that not only does it have... You know, it it has uh, it has a cast and a set of characters that represent a kind of a, a broad variety of different kinds of people who you know might work in a police station in New York. Yeah. Um, but it it wears those it wears those cultural categories pretty lightly and elegantly. That they matter in the show. They're not mm-hmm. ignored in the show. Um, but at the same time, they are not the subject matter of the show. Yes. And it's so rare that a television show does not have one or the other, that, that either ethnicity and, you know, sexuality and so forth are ignored or that they are what the thing is about. Right. And it's nice I, to have it's nice to have something that, um, you know, acknowledges the differences, the cultural differences between the characters. But it's, you know, it's not the center of the show. That's a really high compliment. Thank you. I mean, I can't take credit, but I'll I'll say thank you for all of the writing staff. I think uh, I, I think the the best thing about that is right. Like that's how we live our lives most of the time. Yeah, sometimes this stuff comes up in your day to day, but you know, I certainly don't enter a room and announce like, "Hello, my name is Stephanie Beatriz, and I identify as Latina and bisexual." Like that's not something that I. I don't have like that's not what we do as human beings. Like you don't we... have to. You you've got that printed on your T-shirt. <laughs> I actually do have a couple T-shirts that say something like that. But <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think that that's the that is the beauty of that show. You know, there was that episode. I think it was last year, last season, uh, called Moo Moo, where Terry deals with racial profiling, and. Some people didn't like that episode. They were not into it. They were like, you know, stay in your lane, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You're supposed to be this funny escape from the world. And other people really appreciated that we talked about it because, you know, we're a cop show. And that is something that's going on in the world that cops deal with. I feel like you say that it is part of 
you know, part of the way you live your life. But I think that one of the functions of white privilege is that I, as a white person, especially as a straight white dude, I can presume that, you know, the cultural milieu around me almost all of the time uh, will not ask me to stretch or consider myself from an outside perspective or my own perspective from an outside perspective. And that has been the way that television shows have worked for a long time because they've been run by people like me who just like either they were like making a choice like this is going to be the episode where we deal with race Mm -hmm. or it was invisible. Right. I I remember having this discussion with an actor friend of mine who was saying he's he's also a white cis dude and he was like. You know, you're really lucky because you're getting cast a lot and like Hollywood's just like really into uh, people of color lately. And I was like, that is a strange statement for you to make, (laughs) you know, on so many levels. Number one, I'm going to remind you that anytime you anytime you turn on the television, you flip your channels and you're seeing yourself. You're seeing yourself on Friends. You're seeing yourself on Cheers. You're seeing yourself on Frasier. You're seeing yourself on Seinfeld. You know, those people all look like you. You can identify with those people. Where am I? Where are my black friends? Where are my Asian friends? Where are my friends that identify as trans or asexual? Like, they're nowhere to be found, you know? And so, like, if you're constantly inundated with this idea that you don't exist, you start to feel like, well, maybe I don't have any rights or maybe I shouldn't ask for things because, like, it just I'm, I'm probably not equal or the worst. My story is not important. We'll continue my conversation with Stephanie Beatrice after a short break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rothy's. Rothy's is the everyday flat for life on the go that comes in four fashionable styles for women. The flat, the point, the loafer, and the sneaker. Fun designs and patterns while still looking polished and professional with new colors launched every few weeks. Best of all, Rothy's are made from recycled plastic water bottles and completely machine washable so you can feel good about wearing them. Go to rothys.com and enter code BULLSEYE to get your flats and free shipping. We take most things for granted, like our morning coffee. But there are a lot of people behind that cup of coffee. And A.J. Jacobs set out to thank all of them. It doesn't just take a village to make a cup of coffee. It takes the world. Ideas around appreciation on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, all. It's Jesse, the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Maybe you have heard of me. A quick announcement. We're really excited to share it with you. We're going to be doing a very special live episode of Bullseye. It's going to be Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. What are you going to see if you go to Portland, Oregon to see this show? You will see me live on stage talking with folks like Corin Tucker from Slater Kinney, director Lance Bangs, writer Bill Oakley, Simpsons legend. Uh, We will also have live music from Roseblood and live comedy from Katie Wen. It's going to be a blast and a half. It's also part of a big podcast festival called Listen Up Portland. Tons of other great podcasts are playing at it, too. Our pals, the Doughboys, among others. So, again, that's Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at listenupportland.com. And thanks. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actress Stephanie Beatrice. 
You've seen her on TV's Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where she plays Rosa Diaz. She's also a regular on BoJack Horseman. When she and I talked, she had just starred in the film The Light of the Moon. Let's listen to a scene from Brooklyn Nine-Nine with okay. uh, my guest Stephanie Beatrice. And um, so she's she plays Rosa Diaz, a detective on the squad of the, the titular uh, police station. And she is really tough and rides a motorcycle and never shows emotion. And then she falls in love with this guy called Adrian Pimento, who is a... What was he? So he was like a, he's like a former crooked cop on the lam or something. What was the setup for? He was undercover. He was undercover. Oh, for he was a undercover really for time. like ten years or something. Yeah, and and did a bunch of unspeakable nightmarish things while undercover <laughs> to stay undercover. Um, he's played by Jason Mantzoukas, the great Jason Mantzoukas. And uh, in this scene, the the two of you are announcing your engagement. Check it out, losers. Guess who got their dealer? Nice. How'd it go down? We chased him through a subway tunnel back up through a storm drain. Adrian and I got engaged, and then we busted him with half a kilo of coke in his sock. Wait, wait, wait. What did you just say? It was in his sock. These dummies, they never think we're going to check their socks. (laughs) No, before that, weirdo, the getting engaged part. Oh, yeah, we got engaged. Engaged, engaged? Yeah. As in to be wed. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. We want teats. Tell us. I don't want to toot my own horn or anything, but it was super romantic. You follow. I'll cut him off in the alley. Okay, wait. You want to get married? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You don't seem like a a cold, brutal human being in, in real life. Um, is it weird that people know you so well from this television program, you know, from being in their house once a week and that you are this entirely different person? I mean, it's not it's not weird for me. Uh, I think it can be weird for fans of the show. Uh, I sometimes sense a bit of disappointment when I'm not who they've met. They've seen her over and over and over. They're used to her vocal patterns, the way she moves, the way she dresses. And when they meet me, they're sort of sometimes astounded but also like it's very flattering in another way you know like i sometimes describe myself as a character actress and i think that that holds true for the rosa role especially because she's so different than i am so stephanie uh, i i want to talk about your new movie um, and I, I want to give a heads up to folks who are listening that that the new movie which is called the light of the moon is about sexual assault. Um, It's about specifically the sort of ramifications and after effects of uh, uh, sexual assault uh, on a character played by Stephanie. And so um, that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the interview um, so that you know. Um, Let's play a clip from the film. This is the morning after the assault. And... Stephanie is in bed and she's got a big shiner. Um, her character's name is Bonnie. A- and her her boyfriend, her live-in boyfriend, who's played by Michael Stahl David, is bringing her breakfast in bed. Are you just going to sit here and watch me eat? The show's not about to start, Matt. No, I just... They told me at the hospital that I'm supposed to reinforce like a positive male influence in your life. I don't think you're supposed to tell me that. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. Sit down. 
Like I know this is weird and uncomfortable and I don't know what to say, but just try and be yourself, okay? Sure, sorry. And stop apologizing. You're gonna kiss me again? I, I'm dying to kiss you, I just don't wanna hurt you. I can handle it. I think rape is such a common, what do they call that in dramatic, inciting incident Mm-hmm. in drama, especially in film and television. Yes. But the consequences and ramifications of it are typically... Forgotten. Yeah, I mean, so or, yeah. or so simply reduced to yes. something like justice or revenge. Yes. Um, both of which tend to be treated from a male perspective as well. Yes. I mean, and a lot of times you see the the rape becomes like this character was sort of a nothing character and then she's raped and now she becomes a fully fleshed out human being which is like an insane way to portray that it's insane but it's so normal and we've become anesthetized to it you know well oh yeah that makes sense yeah i was watching this thing and she got raped and and then that was it that's it right and like this is an act that takes place constantly i mean it's like one in four one in five women i think that have been raped in their lifetimes People are dealing with this. So many of the people that you know in your office, your friends, they're not talking about it necessarily, but so many people that you know have lived through this and no one is telling their story. No one is telling that story. Was it scary for you to take that on? Hell yeah. Yes, it was extremely scary. I feel an immense amount of of responsibility to try to tell that story in the most honest way that I can. I've never been sexually assaulted, but trying to, you know, talk to that friend of mine, a couple friends of mine that have lived through something like this, and then trying to really put myself in the shoes of Bonnie the whole time and just, like, live that world as honestly as possible the whole time. I am hopeful that people that see the film can sort of get a glimpse of what that might be like for someone that's lived through that. But I I also know that it's one specific story. It's not everyone's story. It's one specific story that we're telling. We're telling Bonnie's story, and not everyone's story is that story. So I know that sometimes it won't, people won't be able to identify with it. Um, But I did my best, and I certainly threw myself at it as much as I could. So I'm, I'm hopeful that people connect with it. How did it affect your life to live with this as an actor? It was weird. It was, you know, I tried to, what I wanted to do on that set was create an environment in which everyone felt like they were working together to tell this story in the best way that they possibly could. So I made it a point to make the environment really friendly. I was, I tried to learn everyone's name. And if I didn't, I was at least like conscious that everyone was working and everyone had a job to do and that we were all I wasn't more important than anyone else you know Um, on the particular day that we filmed the rape scene I was pretty quiet and I kept to myself but I tried to kind of like keep spirits up you know because I was like we're filming this really dark thing I don't want it to also feel super dark on set like I want everyone to feel like I'm okay you know and I was okay because we we blocked out the shot the rape scene shot for shot sort of like you would a fight scene or something like that and, you know, we did the scene over and over. Jess, our director, kept the camera rolling. Uh, we talked about, you know, there were a couple times where um, the actor that was playing the rapist, he was a little too far away from me in some of the shots. And Autumn Aiken, our DP, who's a, also a woman, uh, 
at one point she stopped and she was like, look, it looks it doesn't look right on camera. Like it needs to be more aggressive. And so everyone asked me, are you okay with that? I said, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Let's get the shot. We did it. And that day was hard, but it was also okay. It was manageable, right? And so then I get home and I'm eating dinner and I just feel so drained and awful. And then I get in the shower and take a shower and I just cried for a really long time. And as I was crying, I thought, this isn't even, this isn't even close to what survivors slash victims feel this is like nothing this is nothing compared to what they go through you know this is me pretending for one afternoon that this happened your character also you know i mean she is she is suffering with this horrible trauma through most of the course of the film but she is also a person who has friends and fun and stuff Mm -hmm. that struck me as a very important part of the story that while this is a story about her, about the ramifications of the fact that she was sexually assaulted, um, it isn't solely a story about her as a victim and person who is suffering, that she has relationships that have, you know, a positive impact on her life. She mm-hmm. has fun. Um, you know, yeah. it's it's all colored by this event, but it it's there. One of the things that I liked the most about the script is that Bonnie's really funny. She has a really strong sense of humor throughout the film. And some of it is gallows humor, but it's funny, man. She's really funny. And I thought that that was such an important part of this character because, like, she is – she's still who she was, you know? Like, she's still – there's just – this thing happened, right? And it happened to her, but it doesn't rob her of of who she was before. She's funny, and she brings that humor into so many of the scenes – I thought that was number one necessary because like you can't you cannot sit through a movie that is that is dealing with such a dark subject and not be able to release the pressure valve like you can't, you know, uh, just dramaturgically. Um, but on top of that, it like really it like shows you that like it's not going to be the defining moment of this woman's life ever. She just won't let that be. And I think most people that have gone through this thing refuse to let it be like that that's you know I walk in the room and I'm the woman that was raped or I'm the man that was raped I think that a lot of rape stories that we see in scripted entertainment are on cop shows and one of the things that defines most cop shows is the delivery of justice Mm -hmm. so you know part of the reason that watching Law and Order or whatever is satisfying is that you know from the beginning that as the process works its way through that in the end justice will be delivered. Right. And it seems to me like one of the premises of this film, The Light of the Moon, is that not only is justice not guaranteed, but justice isn't... You know, the way that we think of justice, justice through the legal system, you know, it's not a cure for trauma. Right. It doesn't resolve things. It doesn't. I mean, how could it, right? Like, you've, you know, let's say you're one of the lucky ones and they actually catch who did it to you, you know, let's say, then you probably have to go to trial and then you're probably going to be up on the witness stand and then you've got to live through, you know, retelling your story. 
And then let's say you are one of the lucky ones and your perpetrator goes to jail, which does not often happen, by the way. Then you go home and you have to keep living your life. But the thing still happened to you, right? Like the thing still happened. And that, I think, is one of the things that I think that our film is really trying to show. It's like because of the media that we've consumed, like justice is always served and the bad guy always gets caught. And I mean, a great example of that in another film that I really love is Room. And in Room, those characters, they get out and they find their way to freedom. But the repercussions of what they suffered are still affecting them all the time, you know? And even though, like, he gets caught and it, justice is hopefully going to be served, it's still, it still doesn't feel fair or right, you know? And there's still so much victim blaming going on. It's like, why did you put yourself in a position to have that happen to you? You know, you're going to have to live with that forever. I mean, we're, we're seeing it, like, now in all these women that have come forward about Harvey Weinstein and it's like so many people the response is like well you went to the hotel room I mean you took the meeting we are we have so much work to do we have so much work to do I feel like your character in The Light of the Moon part of her struggle is and it dovetails with the way these things are represented in in film generally, is her struggle is to be the protagonist of her life Mm -hmm. in the context of this horrible thing having happened, that what she wants is to be able to choose her path, to to let her sense of self be what drives her. Yes, and not have it be defined by something that she didn't choose, didn't want, can't control. I think in a in a weird way that's sort of all all of, all of us want that you know which I think is what makes Bonnie a good protagonist in in the films that we can all identify with her in some way or another but especially the feeling of like how dare you tell me how dare you tell me that I'm broken and that I have to do it this way or I have to live this 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 has to be the path now um, I get to choose. I want to choose. And her ultimate, like, frustration with, you know, the limits that she has because she wants to have it all go back to the way it was before and or, like, have it all just be over. All of the feelings, all of, all of it just be, like, done, end it. And she can't do that by herself. And she ultimately has to reach out to other people to have that happen. And that's not something Bonnie is comfortable with. <laughs> Well, Stephanie, I am so grateful that you took all this time to come be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. It was really lovely speaking with you. Stephanie Beatrice. Her film, The Light of the Moon, is very affecting, very beautiful. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime if you want to check it out there. The new season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine also just kicked off on NBC. If you haven't watched it, this is one of my, probably my favorite show on network television. What a hoot it always is. God bless the National Broadcasting Company for saving it from the scrap pile because it is hilarious. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where apparently, I just found this out, that my producer Kevin is leading a staff trip to Shakey's tomorrow. Apparently he used to work at Shakey's and he isn't keeping that secret like he should be. 
Uh, it says here, please don't fire him. Yeah, I mean, we'll give it some thought. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is slash was Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien, production fellow at MaximumFun.org, Shana Deloria. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally. He's also known as DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan. You can find uh, an album he made of interstitial music from Bullseye on Bandcamp. Our theme song is by the Go Team. Our thanks to them for letting us use it and to their label, Memphis Industries. They're the best. Great band. Great folks. And did you know that we have been making this show for, like, more than 15 years? So there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes. You can listen to all of them on our website at MaximumFun.org. Even, like, the interview I did with Henry Rollins on the phone when I was 23, that then uh, Ira Glass sent me a nice email about. Anyway, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.